Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Morning. How are we doing? Nine o'clock? All right. Caffeinated and ready to go. I like that. Well, if you're here for the first time, welcome to Rocky Peak. I am not Pastor Mike Early. That guy is out of town. I, my name is Dre. I have the privilege of serving as our high school pastor here at Rocky Peak, and uh, I pay them to do that. And um, I get to be up here with you guys again, and I get to continue our series. But before I do, there's two upcoming opportunities to get involved here at Rocky Peak I want to highlight. So if you do me a favor, pull out this beautiful program you got on your way in. If you turn to the back couple announcements I want to highlight. The first one is starting next Sunday. During the 11 o'clock service, we're starting a course called Christianity 101. This is an amazing opportunity to be able to dig into the core truths of what we believe. And so this course is really designed if you're a new believer, if you've been a believer for a long time but want to refresh your course, or even if you're not a believer but want to explore the claims of Christianity, that's what this course is all about. So there on your program, there's information on how to register. And again, it's going to start next Sunday during the 11 o'clock service, and it goes for five Sundays. The second thing I want to highlight on the back of your program as well is the partnership course that's coming up on on two Sunday nights, March 10th and March 17th. Now, partnership is our version of membership here at Rocky Peak, but we don't like using the word membership because oftentimes that word can connotate something exclusive that only an elite group of people get to become. Partnership is just that. We exist as a church to unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers, and we're not above you. We're partners with you. And so what what these courses are is they're taught by Pastor Mike, and it's an opportunity to learn a little bit about the heartbeat of Rocky Peak, to learn our visions, to learn our values, to learn our strategy and to learn how you can help us unleash this movement, um, this movement God has called us to. So if you're interested in signing up, there's information on how to do that as well. Inside your program, there is a note sheet. If you're like me and your memory stinks and you want to remember something that you heard, whoa, (laughs) I am good. If you're like me, and your memory stinks, you want to remember something that you heard, the note sheet is there as a tool for you to be able to follow along as you go into this. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started this morning. Father, I'm just so grateful to gather with my church family here this morning, Lord. I'm grateful that as we continue this series called Jesus the King, as I start this morning, I just want to take a moment and really reflect and focus on that word, King. I want to take a moment and really understand what that means and the ripples it has in our lives, Lord. You are the Almighty. You are the Lord that came in, as Mike says, that invaded heaven heaven and earth came into this world. Father, you are here to show us that not only are you the king, but you are the king that loves his people. And today, Lord, as we dig into your word, as your word comes alive to us this morning, Father, I pray that whatever our image of you was walking in, whether we had it very positively, whether it's a negative image, even if there's something there, because we're not sure if you're even out there, I pray that this morning answers some questions. I pray this morning gives us some more to think about. But bottom line, Lord, I pray that we start understanding more and more the depths of what it means that not only is Jesus our king, but the king is for his people. We love you, God, and we commit this morning to you. In your son's name, amen. So one thing to know about me is I am a very proud parent. I have an almost 14-month-old son named Gabriel, who I just absolutely adore. (laughs) And uh, he's adorable, right? He's got very attractive parents, so it works. Um... 
Now, I think back to when my wife Megan was expecting Gabriel, and I remember as she told me, like, hey, I'm pregnant, and we were really, really excited, but I'm going to be honest with you guys, too. I was terrified, absolutely terrified at the fact that I was about to become a dad. Now, I wanted this, but now that it was actually happening, I'm freaking out, and I'm terrified for the big reason that I'm sure most new parents are freaking out about because this is a big, life-changing thing, and things are never going to be the same, okay? But within that... I was scared because my whole life, I had never spent any time with babies. And that's not an exaggeration. Just as I grew up, there were never babies in my life. I didn't know what to do with a baby. I'd never so much as changed a diaper in my life, and now I was about to become a dad. I'm sitting there going, there is so much about babies, I don't know. See, growing up, I have a small extended family, so there were no babies in my, in my family. When my brother had kids, my niece and my nephews were babies in another state, so I never got to see them at that stage. And then my friends, for the most part, didn't have babies, and when they did, I stayed away from the babies because I was scared of them. And so here I am faced with the fact that I'm about to be a dad, and I don't know what to do. And so what do I do? It's not in my nature to be surprised. I'm a control freak in that way. I don't like to go with the flow. My wife is much better about that than I am. I set out on a mission. I am going to learn everything there's possibly to learn about babies. And so for those months as we were expecting, I'm reading a book after book about baby. I am Googling, YouTubing videos. I'm taking every class our hospital has offered. My wife and I took a life group at this church that was focused on newborn parents. I'm sitting down with parents I know, and I'm asking question after question. And you know what? Logically, a lot of things about baby started to make sense. I'm sitting there going, looking at like a mechanic, like, okay, if this goes out of whack, you do this, and if this, okay. And to be honest with you guys, I was starting to get a little arrogant about it because I started sitting there going, well, this makes sense. I guess parents that have a hard time just didn't Google something or look it up. <laughs> so sure enough, I know, right? That's going to get me in trouble. So sure enough, my son is born. And those first couple of nights in the hospital, they're tough, but they went like textbook. They went exactly as I expected. And so, you know, I'm going, this is awesome. I've got this down. I'm a good dad. And then we brought Gabriel home. Now, any parent in this room knows what I'm talking about. There is no amount of knowledge in this world that will adequately prepare a new parent for the first couple of nights home with your child. It is like a war zone. And you're sitting there and you don't know what to do because nothing works. And here was the most difficult part. All the knowledge I had amassed, everything that I had learned, I couldn't remember a word of it in the midst of all this stress. I'm flipping out as we've got this uncontrollably crying child. Megan's looking at me going, what do we do? And I'm like, I don't know. And I'm flipping through books and I'm like, okay, okay, here's what the book says. And in a moment, I turn to face my wife to tell her and I forget what I had just read. And I'm sitting there going, I don't know what to do. Oh my gosh, I'm being punished for my arrogance. I don't get this. But here was the worst part about that. I felt like such a failure. I felt like such a failure. I felt like such a bad dad. I'm going, how am I going to be a good dad for him if I can't even retain head knowledge? And here in the moment of stress, and believe me, I've understood that parenting is pretty much a big ball of stress. As you go into it, like, how am I going to do this? And we went through a couple nights like that. And same thing, hitting that wall of knowledge, hitting that wall. It's like, why can't I remember any of this? And then the Lord gave me a gift. 
what started happening was these images started coming into my head that I'd put away, that I had forgotten that I had recorded in a sense. And here's what those images were. See, long before I thought about having Gabriel, long before even Megan had been in the picture, see, I've worked in our student ministries department here at Rocky Peak for almost 12 years. And in that time, I've had the amazing privilege to get to know, to get to interact, and get to see the example of some incredible parents. In that time, I remember, even long before I was ever dating my wife, seeing how these parents interacted and something about the way they did it just clicked with me. And I remember going, wow, if I, if I become a parent one day, I want to become like that. I want to do that. And so what my mind was doing, it was recording this example. These parents, these different sets of parents started becoming models in my life. And so what happened is I couldn't remember the book knowledge, but these examples started coming up to my life and it started calming me down. I started asking the question, okay, how would this set of parents go about it? Now, maybe I had never seen them with a newborn necessarily, but I had seen them interact. I had seen things like their patience. I had seen things like their tone. I had seen things like their joy, even the midst of difficult situations. And I started asking, how would so-and-so go about this? How would this mom do this? How would this dad go about this? And you know what? It started having an impact. It started working. It started making a big, big difference. And those models of parents in my life taught me and I changed because of it. And in fact, a little bit over a year later, I'm starting to realize that so much of my parenting to this day, knowledge is great and I still flip through those books, but so much of my parenting is based on the examples of these parents that have gone before me. Now, I share this story just to illustrate a really important truth and it's this, people that we identify as models in our lives have a deep impact in our lives. If you think about it, all human beings universally, a key way that we learn as people is through example, is it not? A key way that we learn in a way that sticks is by seeing it modeled before us. And if you think about it, our whole lives, we have been a people that have been seeking models to base our lives around. It starts when we're children. It starts when we're young and we want to be like this athlete. We want to be like this celebrity. We want to be like this awesome relative. We, we say things like, I want to be like that person when I grew up. And we put posters on our walls or in our lockers or whatever. And the interesting thing about it is we may not necessarily be putting up posters of these people now, but as adults, we don't outgrow that. As adults, we continue to look for people we want to model ourselves after. And what is it we're looking to get out of that relationship, so to speak? Well, we we want to be like them, but why? We want to be like these people we've identified as models because we feel like if I become like that person, if I model myself after that person, that's going to lead me to the best life possible. That's going to lead me to how I define success. Now, the reality is this is part of our core wiring because we start doing a young and all of us do it, and here's why it's a part of our wiring. Because another way to look at this idea of being modeled, another way to use that term is discipleship. At its core, the word discipleship means becoming the student of someone, learning from this teacher, and eventually becoming like them. I love on your note sheet, I put a quote from Francis Chan it's a simple quote that clarifies this very well. He writes, it is impossible to be a disciple or a follower of someone and not end up like that person. See, the truth is these models in our lives, and we all have them, they change us. 
Now that can be a great thing because God gives us some amazing models in our lives, but that can also be a very negative and destructive thing depending on who we decide to follow. But again, it's part of our basic wiring because we as a creative, created people, we are looking to be discipled. There on your note sheet again, scripture talks about this. And in Luke 6.40, Jesus says, a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. We were created to be discipled. We were created to learn from models because ultimately we were created to learn from our ultimate model in God the Father. We were created to be to learn to be like Jesus, to learn from his example and to be like him and to impact this kingdom in our world. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. See, as Christ followers, Jesus is our ultimate model for so many things in life. But what we're going to see in our scripture this morning is that one of the most important things that Jesus modeled for us, he modeled something that is vital and essential to the Christ follower, and that is the importance of continually pursuing a deeper intimacy with God the Father. So again, if you're here for the first time, welcome to Rocky Peak. For a good amount of weeks now, we've been in a series called Jesus the King. Let me take a few minutes just to bring you up to speed. What we're doing is we're doing a study in the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. And this is the life and teaching of Jesus as told by one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus when the movement was still fresh and young. Now, Mark was a very close friend of the Apostle Peter. And what the Gospel of Mark is, is Peter's firsthand account that Mark Mark is writing down. Now, this account is the first written document we have of the life and teaching of Jesus in human history. This was written about 30 to 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, again, when the movement was still young. And Mark is writing in the heart of the Roman Empire at a time of heavy persecution of Christians. And he's writing to encourage new believers, to help focus them on this is what our God said, this is what he did, and this is how we base our lives around that. So so we've been going through that for the last couple of weeks. Now, to really understand our scripture this morning, I need to take a few moments to recap what happened last week. Now, last week, if you weren't with, weren't with us, we talked about the fact that Jesus had a big day. If you remember that, Jesus had a very busy day in which he did just about everything except for rest. See, last week we talked about how Jesus went into Capernaum, the city of Capernaum, with the first of his four disciples. See, we don't have the completed 12 yet, but he called the first four fishermen, and they're going into Simon Peter's hometown. And what happened on this Saturday, he had a big Saturday, is Jesus, being a good Jewish man, on Saturday, the Sabbath, went into the synagogue, and he was invited to teach. And as he's teaching, people are marveled by his authority, because he's not doing what was common of rabbis at the time that they're quoting other rabbis. He is teaching with authority and quoting scripture and basically quoting himself, and the people are amazed. Now, in that interchange, a demonized man, a demonized man starts creating this ruckus and Jesus commands that spirit out of him. And what do you think the people around are going? They're going, what the heck is happening? Now word is getting out in this town. Jesus is going in by evening in Capernaum at Simon Peter's house. It seems like the whole town has showed up to hear Jesus, to see what is up with this guy, to get healing. And we're told in that scripture that Jesus is healing people physically. Jesus is healing the demonized over and over again. Again, he is basically making his first entry into public ministry, and it is a big, big splash. Now, before we go into our scripture today, we need to take a moment 
moment, and I want to ask you to put yourself in the, in the shoes of one of those first disciples, to put those souls in the shoes that you knew there was something about Jesus. You're believing that he's the long-awaited Messiah, and here you are, starting Saturday morning in that synagogue, watching him just command the evil spirits and say, you have no authority here. What are you feeling? If it's me, I'm sitting there and going, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And then you go into the evening and what is happening? These people are coming to Jesus for healing and he's healing them. He's teaching and you're seeing this authority again. What are you thinking as one of those disciples? Again, only speaking for myself, I would probably be thinking we are on the right team. Now, Mark doesn't tell us that night how they closed up shop, so to speak. I don't know if they just put a closed sign on the door or how they got a moment of peace, but we know there was a point where Jesus and the disciples separated for the evening. Now, what do you think you're talking about if you're one of those disciples? Again, if it was me, I don't think I could sleep. I think the adrenaline would be pumping. I think there would be a lot of excitement as you're talking. If I was Simon going, Andrew, did you see that? Do you believe what just happened? Can you, what do you think tomorrow's gonna be? And probably if it was me, we'd be talking about what is the next thing gonna be? What is the next day? Do we need to go get a tan? Should we get some TV time or go on YouTube? Like, because the thought is this is only gonna get bigger, right? And what we're gonna see in scripture is that Jesus, his next step is very simple, but it's profound. But to these early disciples, it was completely unexpected to the point where they thought initially he was making the ba a bad move. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter one. If you've got your apps, turn them on. Mark chapter one, starting at verse 35. So starting at verse 35, Mark writes, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So we don't know if Jesus rested this night. Very early in the morning in the original languages, we translate that being between 3 to 6 in the morning. So Jesus was very much a morning person. And for whatever reason, he didn't let the disciples know that he was leaving. He just slipped out and he wanted to be a place alone where there was free from distractions. And the, the key to what we're talking about today is what does he do? Where It says where he prayed. And if you've got a pen, underline that. If you have the ability to highlight in your abs, highlight that word prayed because that is the core of what Jesus is modeling here. Because understand what happened the day before was a big day. And those of you that have been around church for any length of time, you know that this was the first of many big days Jesus was going to have. Yet this is not the only time we see Jesus doing this, where he seeks time alone to go and pray to the Father. What we're seeing is we're seeing Jesus' priority, and that's this. The core of this passage, the core of Jesus' model in this instance is that at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus is setting the foundation and the tone, meaning that his priority and his passion is to deepen his most important relationship, and that is with God the Father. And here's the key. What Jesus is modeling is because he makes seeking the Father and deepening that relationship of priority, his model is that his ministry, his life, and his power flows out of that relationship. 
Everything he does flows out of the relationship with the Father. And that's what we're seeing modeled here. That's what we see modeled in many places in Scripture where Jesus gets away to pray to deepen that Father, deepen that relationship with the Father. And so let's keep reading. In verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. So here's what happened. We, we can infer from this that people at Capernaum kept showing up to the house early in the morning. We want more of Jesus. We need more healing. We want more of the show in some cases. So Simon and the disciples are excited to give the people what they want, and they find that Jesus is gone. So what we get from the original languages is this wasn't like a simple, oh, let's go and find Jesus. This was kind of like a search party. You could connotate that he hunted Jesus to try to find where he is. And here's the thing. The Greek word that's been translated into looking and looking for occurs about 10 times in Mark. And this word has actually very negative connotations. Every time it's used to refer to somebody looking for Jesus, it's a negative word. And here's what it means. It has the sense of reproach. It has a controlling, a controlling side to it because a better way to put it is when he says, hey, everybody's looking for you. This is how it comes across in the Greek. Hey, what are you doing here when you should be over here? Does that make sense? Now, that comes across very controlling, right? But if we have a moment of honesty, that's very relatable to many of us. Because I'm sure many of us could have an honest time where we've talked to God and be like, hey God, what are you doing over here when you should be doing this in my life over here? Now make a note of that because we're going to come back to that a little bit later. In verse 38, what does Jesus do? Jesus coming out of this time with the Father as the disciples come. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout the Galilee, the entire region, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So what happens as Jesus comes out of this time? As the disciples are sitting there going, hey, God, here's what you should be doing. Jesus comes out of his time of intimacy with the Father, and what does he do? He reaffirms what his God-given mission is. He refocuses the team, and he goes, hey, the Lord has called me to preach the gospel. Now, if you've been with us in the series, gospel, good news, the original word, the euangelion, and the good news meaning that the king, the true king is here. And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, what is that message? Repent, meaning change the way you think and believe. See, we have this negative view of repentance, but changing the way we think, repentance means leaving the bondage and destruction of sin and believing that our king gives us new life as a new creation. And so we see Jesus coming out of the time with the father. He's going the fa after the time of the father, everything flows out of that time and he refocused us, he reaffirmed us and we're gonna get back on mission. Now I do this often when I teach up here, if I could steal a word from Pastor Mike and do a quick sidebar here. You gotta ask yourselves, is what the disciples wanted necessarily wrong? No, they wanted to capitalize on the fact that Jesus was getting famous. They wanted to capitalize, maybe in their minds, they thought that was gonna be the best way to spread the gospel. They wanted something good. They wanted to see people get healed. I'm sure for Simon, this is his hometown. He's excited what he's gonna do. But here's the little tangent I want us to focus on. Even though it was a good thing, do you know what never came across in their thought process? The idea of going to the Lord and putting it before him. 
and we see this in Jesus' model, this is where he refocuses. So if you look on your note sheet, there's a section there called growing from Jesus' example. So let's examine if Jesus is our ultimate model, which he is, what do we learn from this example? What do we learn from what he modeled here? And that's that first villain. Jesus modeled that intimacy with God is a need. Emily recommended that you put a big box around the word need. Jesus modeled that intimacy with God is a need. See, let's talk about what Jesus didn't model. Jesus did not model that one-on-one -on -one time with the Father is simply a good thing. Jesus did not model that one-on-one -on -one time with the Father is something that he was going to try to fit into his busy schedule. Again, like I mentioned as we were going through the passage, what did Jesus model? That this is a need, that everything he did, his power, his success, his ministry flowed out of his most important relationship. It flowed out of the continual deepening of his ultimate relationship, and he modeled that for us. Now there on your note sheet, I put another example of this in Luke 5.16, we're told that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus often modeled that importance of seeking the Father, of deepening that relationship, because the basic core truth is when we deepen that relationship, it overflows into every other aspect of our lives. Now, as we examine that model, we want to grow from this example, but we need to, under but we need to understand something. We need to kind of talk about some basic truths. Jesus models that deepening our relationship with one-on-one -on -one time with the Father is vital for Christ followers. But the truth of the matter is, for so many Christ followers, this is a really difficult thing. If you've been around church settings like life groups or Bible studies or anything along those times, when people share struggles, when people share what they need pray for, have you noticed that the majority of the time it's spending time with God? Have you noticed that often it's seeking that time to spend with the Father? This is something that is very difficult for so many of us, myself included. Now, there's a lot of reasons why. And to really grow from Jesus' example, we really need to examine why is that such a difficult thing for so many Christ followers. Now, if you were to ask yourself, like, why is that a difficult thing? Why do you find this? The number one reason that tends to come up is busyness, does it not? Like, oh, I'm just, just really busy, like things at work, and I've got to get the kids to all these things and all this is going on. There's a lot of busyness going on. Now, I don't talk about this to try to produce guilt, nor to stand up here and wag a finger in your face. Here's why I'm trying to bring this to light. One, because I need this as much as anybody else does. But the second thing is to go to a next destination to grow, we need to acknowledge where we are now. We need to bring it to light so that God can come through and break down these barriers. But here's where I'm going with this. The re it's been my experience in my life, it's been my experience with working with a lot of people over the years that busyness isn't the reason. It is an outcome of the reason, but there's a core reason that's keeping this a roadblock. And so I wanna share that with you, what I've seen over and over again. Now it's not in your note sheets, but it would be something good to write down, and that's this. What I've come to discover in my life and in the lives of many Christ followers is that we have a very difficult time making that one-on-one -on -one time with God a priority because we have a massive misunderstanding of what that time with God actually is. 
often the biggest roadblock to pursuing more depth, to pursuing intimacy with God, is because we have a massive misunderstanding of what that time actually is. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Oftentimes when it comes to pursuing God one-on-one, we see it as a good thing, but we don't see it as the ultimate thing. Now, let me define ultimate for our purposes. He's like when we look at something as being the ultimate thing, we look at it as being something that is going to define us. We look at it as being something that is going to give us value, worth, hope, purpose, provide for my future, and success. That is the ultimate thing. Now, there's many of us, and there's been many times in my life where I'd like to think that in my life, God is my ultimate But the reality is when I take an honest look at my life and I start to realize the importance I've given other things, I go, yeah, God is good and I'll get to him when the ultimate things are taken care of because this will provide for me. And we start sending ourselves an unspoken message that I love God and I love Jesus and I trust him with my salvation. I'm excited about the heaven thing, but I don't trust him to provide financially for my family. I don't trust him to provide my worth when everybody else is tearing me down. I don't pursue that because I think, well, maybe he doesn't have it in him. Maybe he doesn't have that power. And so we start pursuing these things that are ultimate and we start working in, and the message we start sending and the message we see from other models and the message we start modeling is God is great and spending time with him is good, but when the important things are taken care of. Does that make sense? Let me clarify, let me give you an example of how I've been seeing this um, in our youth. As a youth pastor, like I mentioned, for almost 12 years, I've had the privilege to be able to work with hundreds upon hundreds of teenagers of various ages. And here's what I'm seeing. Teenage culture changes very quickly, and there's different struggles and different trials, and they're presented differently. But in the time I've been in student ministries here at Rocky Peak, I've seen one thing over and over again throughout this whole years, and that's this idea of Jesus not becoming an ultimate in the lives of our teenagers. What I'm seeing is I'm seeing young people that love the Lord. I'm seeing young people that love church. And I'm seeing young people that want to pursue that relationship. But what I'm seeing is not one adult, but they're seeing multiple models of adults in their lives that are modeling that God is great and you get to it after the important things are done. And what I'm seeing, they're seeing this model and there's no, none of us would sit there and go, that's what we want to teach them or that's what we want to say, but they're picking up this unspoken message. And what's happening is they're growing up into adulthood, they're heading off to college and their spiritual lives are being stunted or their spiritual lives are just ending because in their heads, yeah, God is great and I have plenty of time to get to him, but I need to take care of the things that are actually gonna lead me to success, a great life and a future. And so we're modeling for them in our lives that God is great, but he's not an ultimate thing. See, Jesus modeled the opposite to us. He modeled that everything came out of that relationship. And so we need to understand that sometimes it becomes a roadblock because we have this misunderstanding. And what happens is this misunderstanding affects it when we do enter those one-on-one times. And we do enter, it becomes a roadblock because that misunderstanding of God being good, this is a good time, but not being the ultimate, not being life-giving, not being what leads me to success, can make pursuing God come across like an obligation and a chore than something we get to do, can it not? If you think of something that's an obligation in your life, we can justify and go, yeah, it's good, 
but we're not excited about doing it. Think about the things you are excited about doing. You're like, yeah, this completely fills me up. We look at spending time with God as checking something off the list, as checking something off the agenda, and instead we don't see it as being what it's supposed to be, the foundation from which the rest of our agenda flows. And when we approach this time, it's kind of like, okay, God, I know I got to spend some time with you. I got to talk with you, or maybe I'm going to open my Bible. And okay, so I'm going to give you 15 minutes, like in between here, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to do this, and then we're done, right? Maybe we time ourselves and we kind of check it off the list. Spend time with God. Okay, time to get back to the real stuff. Now, God is a relationship. Now, let's translate that to another relationship. How would that fly in any other relationship we have? Can you imagine in my marriage, if that's how I operated, if with Megan, I came home and be like, okay, Megan, I know I got to spend some time with you. Um, all right, sit down at the table. I got my timer on. You got 15 minutes. How was your day? Um, faster, faster. Tell me how your day. Anything you need from me? 15 minutes, done. Dre out, you know, and you just walk out. Like, how does that work? You all sit there and know that relationship is going to end very, very quickly. And so we sit there, but if we look at it as an obligation, here's what I found in my own life. Sometimes we sit there and go, well, I don't want it to feel. None of us intend for it to happen. None of us intend that to be our heart about it. And so sometimes we try to force things. Sometimes we try to push it. But have you realized what I've realized in my life? When we try to really force an obligation, it just leads to frustration and bitterness it starts leading to a point where we sit there in those times and go, I'm not getting anything out of it. And a lot of it is because we're seeing it as something less than what it is. Now, the joy of this morning is that this isn't where I'm ending this talk. The joy of this morning is we get to go back to the model of Jesus. See, Jesus knew that because of sin, this was going to be a struggle. Jesus calls us to live a certain way, but what I love about Jesus is he modeled how he wanted us to live. And so here he is, if we go back to his model, if you, are you realizing that the model we saw of him pursuing intimacy with the Father is completely different from what I just described? And so what we need to do is we need to stop looking at the external and we need to allow Jesus to do what he does best, and that's come into our lives and completely change our view of one-on-one -on -one time with him from the inside out. Because sometimes we get caught up in what I heard another pastor say, the Jesus sauce syndrome, when we really need a change at our core. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. If you take me to a restaurant, which you're welcome to do because I like free food, if you ever take me to a restaurant, I'm very simple when it comes to my taste. I love a good hamburger. If there is a hamburger on the menu, most likely I'm going to order it because I'm simple that way. I enjoy a good burger. And so I, this happens often where you get the burger and it looks great on the outside and you take a bite and it's just a disappointing experience. And here's the thing about it. It's not that it was terrible. It's just bland. And so what do I do in that situation? Well, I start dousing that sucker in sauce. I start trying to add some flavor, but the reality is this is an external, this is only an external fix. If I take a bite into an area that doesn't have sauce, I still have that bland problem. The real thing is we need to change the core of the matter. Now that's a way to visualize what is going on here. See, sometimes we try to push and force it when it seems like an obligation and we do these externals. The reality is we need to, again, let God change how we view this time with him one-on-one -on -one, and that's why Jesus modeled this. 
And so there in your note sheets, let's understand what is what's really going on when we pursue the Father one-on-one. In your note sheet, there's a section called the power of his presence, and here's that fill-in. Here's what this actually is. When we spend one-on-one time with the Father, intimacy with God leads to transformation. Intimacy with God leads to transformation. When we give our lives to Jesus in an incredible act of repentance, when we say, Jesus, you are the king of my life, I want you to come in to forgive me and to lead me. What happens is Jesus does just that. We become the church, we're told in scripture. Jesus invades our lives, and I love that word, invades. Jesus comes in, and what happens is Jesus begins the process of discipling us, of teaching us how to be more and more like him. We call that sanctification, and that's a process that lasts until we're on the other side of heaven, and that's an amazing thing. See, as we pursue God in various ways, coming together to worship corporately, serving all these different things, we continue this process of sanctification, but especially as we pursue God one-on-one, as we continue to seek to be before our Father, to be before our Creator, He is changing us from the inside out to become more and more like Him, because like Mike said last week, He's using us. He's changing us to go and impact to further the kingdom. And what is he doing through us? He's painting a picture to people who don't know him of what he looks like. He is changing us. He's changing us to be like him. And what's amazing about that time is we sometimes, when we get away from viewing it as an obligation and we see it as transformation, how is that transforming us? Because we are sitting with our creator. See, in my arrogance, I forget sometimes that I'm a created being. In my arrogance, I forget that there is a God that knows more than I do, that there is a God that understands me better than I understand myself. And when I sit before the creator one-on-one, I'm reminded that our creator knows everything about me, the good, the bad, the things I've held secret that I hope no one knows, and despite all that, loves me despite all that, is passionate about me, despite all that, wants to be with me, despite all that, wants to change me, to be more and more like him, to be more like I was originally created to be. And despite all that, he reminds me in that one-on-one time that as my creator, as my king, and especially as my father, he loves me and he holds nothing back from me. And in that one-on-one time, as I'm being transformed to be more like Jesus, what starts happening? That starts overflowing into the rest of my life. That starts overflowing into my job and my professional life. That starts overflowing into my friendships. That starts overflowing into my, into my romantic relationship, my, my parenting. That starts overflowing in what I do. And it doesn't mean that we're perfect. We're not perfect. Thankfully, we do have a perfect God. But we are continually being transformed Now, the amazing thing about this transformation is we could do a whole series on what kind of transformations take place when we're before the Father, because this is a lifelong thing. We could do a whole series and talk about the fact that when we are before the Father, He transforms us by letting us experience what true love, unconditional love is all about. 
We could talk about how we are transformed through forgiveness, through the fact that God doesn't define us by our sin, but he defines us through the love and grace of Jesus. We could do a whole series on we are transformed because we are given value and purpose and mission to go out and that God is represented by us and he's proud of his creation, imperfections and everything. We could do a lot of things, but what I want to do is I want to focus on one specific transformation that we alluded to from our text this morning, and that's there in your note sheets. That next villain is one of the ways that Jesus transform me, transforms us when we pursue that intimacy is in experiencing freedom through submission. Sounds like a paradox there, doesn't it? Let me explain a little bit what I mean. See, freedom is something all of us would say we would want to experience. And what I'm talking about is freedom at a very core of our being, freedom within our souls. See, what God does is God comes into our lives and frees us from sin, which is bondage. And if you think about it, when we gave our lives to Christ, what happened is a resurrection took place because sin killed us, but Christ brought us back to life. And so we are given that freedom from sin. Again, it doesn't mean that we are perfect, but it means that sin is no longer our definition. But in 1 John 3, 1, it says that we are children of God. And so we are given that freedom, and it's an amazing thing. But how does that work with submission? Because if we were to think about it, submission is not a positive word, is it? When we think of cultural examples, let's pull scripture out of it for this. If you think of cultural examples, what images come to mind when you think of submission? Often think of um, dictators, power trips, unhealthy relationships. Whatever you think of when you think of submission, it's negative. And here's the core of that. Often in our world, the people that are asking for our submission are people that do not have our best interests in heart are people that just want to exert their authority and they're asking for our submission just to prove the point that, hey, you're submitting to me because I am better than you. And for many of us, that's how we encounter submission. And so we come to a biblical concept like submission. We sit there and go, I don't like that. I don't agree with that. Here's one of the great things about God is throughout his word, he takes specific words that our culture has wrecked and he reclaims them, and he defines them to be an amazing thing. And here's what submission means for the Christ follower. Submission is simply saying, I've given my life to Jesus, my king, and it's your show. You are in charge of my life. You lead, and I want to follow. And here's why this is an amazing thing, because unlike worldly examples of submission, our king, our Jesus, has our best interest at heart. Our king wants nothing more but to see his people succeed. There on your note sheet, I put one of my favorite scriptures, John 10, 10, where Jesus says the thief, he's talking about the devil, comes to steal and kill and destroy. He says that I, Jesus, have come, that you may have life and have it to the full. See, there's some translations that write that last part, that you may have the best life possible. 
Now, Jesus isn't necessarily talking about monetary, relationally, the corner office, all these things, and we're not saying those things are bad either, but what he's saying is the best life that we could possibly have is within the will of the creator, meaning as a proud father, as any good father, he wants his children to succeed. And so when Jesus looks at best life, he's like, I want you to have a life where you were alive, not dead because of sin, but alive. I want you to have an incredible life where you are fulfilling your purpose as the church because we start to truly live when we start becoming more like the people we were created to be. And so Jesus is going, I want you to have this incredible life as you reclaim your place as my church, as my temple. I want you to have this incredible life where you understand why I put you on this earth, what I've wired you to do to have a God-given mission. But ultimately, as my church, I want you to have this life because you are fulfilled in the presence of our creator. Does that not blow your mind that our God created us, our God saved us, and he didn't abandon us after that? He didn't go, hey, here's the way to get to heaven and I'll see you there. He just said, this was an incredible beginning. And now until my kingdom comes back, I'm gonna be with you every step of this way because I wanna continue to show because there's gonna be all these messages and all this noise of what life is supposed to be like. But really, and Mike talked about this a couple weeks ago, the devil is a brilliant liar. And he's gonna tell us, here are the things that are gonna lead you to success. And really is going, actually, this is gonna destroy you, but I fooled you. And God walks with us because he's going, here's where you experience life. And that's what happens in the act of submission where we go, God, what do you want? God, I want to do what you want because I know you have my best interests in heart. But let's be honest here. This is tough. This is tough sometimes. This is tough at multiple times in our life. And here's why. Because as children in any parental relationship, there's always going to be a point where we disagree with our father over what's best for us. Those of you that have parents of older children, you've experienced that, have you not? Where you sit there and go, and sometimes what the children want is a good thing, but it's a question of what is absolutely best. And that's hard because when we disagree, we sit there and go, well, do you really have my best interests in heart, God? Going back to the scripture, remember, what did Peter want? It wasn't necessarily wrong, but he's saying, hey, here's what you should do. We see this often in the gospels of Jesus. They had a hard time understanding what Jesus was all about. They misunderstood his message and his methods because they went, well, in my head, here's what I think the Messiah should do because the Messiah is supposed to be for me, right? In my head, but you're not saying what I feel like the Messiah should say. You're not doing what I feel like he should do. You're not doing it at least on my timetable, so something must be wrong here. We can relate to that, can't we? We sit there at times of trial and be like, God, like, have you forgotten about me? We sit there and go, God, I really want to be in this relationship, or I want to pursue this job, or I want to do this, but I I feel like that's not where you want me to go, but this is good. This is a good thing. Why wouldn't you want that? It's hard because we disagree sometimes, and that's something that all of us as Christ followers face, but here's the thing. In spending one-on-one time with the Father, in that transformation that takes place, do you know what the Lord is building in us? Trust. It is hard to trust a stranger. Remember as we teach kids about stranger danger? And as adults sometimes, even if a stranger, have you ever been weirded out? Because honestly, this happened to me, where a complete stranger does something nice for you. And you sit there and go like, you're kind of weirded out because you're like, I just don't know you. 
I don't know your intention. I don't know your motives. I don't know what's going on. And a lot of times we have a hard time when we disagree with God based on how do we know God? Do we trust God? And that one-on-one time, that deepening of that intimacy builds trust because here's the reality. We're not always going to agree with God, but what Jesus models is we can get to a point where we can trust the heart of our Father that he has our best interests in heart. And he's saying, trust me, because I want to see you succeed and I know what I'm doing. Going back to the example of my son, my son is a little daredevil right now. And he doesn't realize that some of the things he, do, he does are very damn. it could be very dangerous for him. So I'm sitting with him two nights ago. Uh, Megan wasn't home, and that's usually when he decides to do something that's going to get him in trouble. I'm sitting with him, and we have this little inflatable ball pit that's Spider-Man themed. And so my son is starting to learn how to walk a little bit. And so I'm sitting, and I'm playing, and I'm cleaning up some toys. I look over, and my son is trying to climb. It's about the size of this music stand. He's trying to climb it like King Kong. And what he doesn't realize is this thing is about to tip over and he's going to go head first into our hardwood floors. And that's going to be bad. So I race real quick and I grab him very gently. And I'm kind of like, no, no, let's play over here. And what does my son do? He starts crying. He got really mad at me. See, to him, this was the best thing he could choose right now. To him, even though he was a kid, he's like, no, this is good. This is fun. This is something I want to do. And to me, here I am as his father. I'm taking him away now. You guys, as adults, you understand what I'm doing. I'm trying to protect him, but he doesn't understand it. He just saw something that was good, and he saw me take it away from him, and he was hurt by that. And I know there's going to be multiple times in his life, whether through examples like that, as he gets older, as he processes more, whether through discipline, whether through honest conversations, that my son is not always going to understand the decisions I make when it comes to him. But my prayer is that I learn from Jesus' model and I raise him in such a way where if he doesn't understand and if he doesn't agree, but he knows the heart of his father, that all I want is the best thing possible for him. And that's why I take these steps. And sometimes we wrestle with God and God allows that. We can wrestle with him. But that intimacy, that transformation, that idea of submitting, freedom comes through submission. But what God is doing, he's building the trust so that we can submit. In your life group study this week, you're gonna be looking how Jesus models this wrestling match of submission in another time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane right before the end of his life. And what I love about this is Jesus knows what he's about to face. And what is he doing as he prays to the Lord? He asks our Father, if there is any other way, please take this cup from me. But you're also gonna look at how does he end that prayer? He simply says, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so we see how Jesus is our model, that it's okay to wrestle, it's okay to disagree, but as we develop this intimacy, that's part of that transformation that the Father is building trust and the Father is for his people. So if you go to the back of your note sheet, as we start to wrap this up, there's two questions I want you to really focus on. As we look at the model of Jesus we start seeing that deepening our relationship with the Father, seeking this one-on-one time is so much more than an obligation, it's a chore. It's a place where the Father transforms us and it's a point of which every aspect of our lives flows out of. And so what we want to do as a community, as Christ followers, is we want to make sure that we are growing in a place where we're putting action to our faith in pursuing the Lord. See, as 
the church at Rocky Peak, one of our core values is that we want to be a people that are pursuing God. And so the first question I want you to just spend some time thinking about over the next couple of days is this. What is your next step to make time with God happen? What is your next step? How are you going to take action? Now, there's some of you in this room that that pursuit of one-on-one time with God, like you have been doing it and you are cranking at it. And so your next step could simply be, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Now, there's some of us in here, understand this is not a guilt-producing thing. This is an awesome thing. What is your next step to develop the most important relationship in your life and start experiencing the passion of your creator? This is an exciting thing. Now, when I say what is your next step, the reality is the way we spend time with the Lord is going to look radically different. The Lord has us to be different people that approach things very, very differently. And that's an awesome thing. Our God is not boring. He loves diversity. And so let me put it, if you're sitting there going like, you know, I'm not sure. I've kind of struggled in the past. I'm not sure how to pursue the next step. Let me give you two simple, two simple action steps you could take. And the first one is this. If you're sitting there going, you know, I'm not sure how to go about this. The first thing I would say is identify a model in your life that you could talk to. Who could you talk to to just bounce some ideas and be like, hey, how do you do this? How do you go about it? What have you seen work for me? Hey, like, how could you suggest, identify something that knows a little bit about how you're wired. Some people, like when it comes to digesting scripture, really are good at reading in various forms. Some picture, some people really digest scripture better by listening to it. As you talk to other people, you start getting these great ideas and these great models. That would be a first action step. The second action step is actually offered through, the web, through our website at rockypeak.org. If you jump on rockypeak.org, we have one of our essential courses in online form, and it's a fantastic course called Pursuing God. It's a video course that's taught by Pastor Mike, and what he does is he t- just talks to various different ways the different wirings of people can pursue God. And I love it. It's fantastic. And that's a great way to just learn to get some education and foundation. Understand something. Learning how to do something like this does not mean you are a bad Christian. Learning how to take a step. Sometimes the steps we take are going to be big. Sometimes they're going to be small. But a step is an awesome step. So if you're sitting there going, man, I've been walking with God for a long time and I feel really bad about this. I think I'm a bad Christian. No, you're not. Because there's no day like today. And the second question I want you to dwell on is, as you pursue that time with God, what is God calling you to submit to him? Where's one area that God wants to give you true freedom in, but you know we've been wrestling with? For some of us, maybe there's a lot of areas. But what is that one key area? To be open with you guys in my life as I was prepping for this and I was praying through this and I was dwelling on this question myself, the first thing that God brought to my mind were my priorities and the way that I schedule my life to reflect what my priorities are. I'm like, man, I need to make sure that I'm reflecting that God is my ultimate priority. So what is something that God is calling you to submit as we take some time to be with him? I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come on out, and we're going to go into a time of worship to close out our time. This is also going to be the time where we um, take our gifts and offering as an act of worship here at Rocky Peak. What I love about the song that the band is going to start off with is a song that uses a lyric that I really want to become our prayer as we move forward as a church. And the lyric is this, we're going to be singing that there's no place I'd rather be 
There is no place I would rather be than here in your love, than in the presence of God. And I love that. And I want to encourage you as we go into this time, make that your prayer. So do me a favor. Would you go ahead? Can we stand together, please? As we stand together, just where you're at, go ahead and just close your eyes. And just reflect on that truth that our lives, our power, our success flows out of the intimacy that we build with our creator. And so as we head into this time, again, let's make the song our prayer. Let me pray for us. Father God, you are our king. You are our model. You are for your people. And as we sing this loudly, Lord, let it be our truth. There is no place we'd rather be than here in your love. As we take these gifts and offerings, Lord, thank you for an opportunity to worship monetarily, to be able to just help the movement in any way we can. We love you, Father, in your son's name, amen. There is uh, there's power in the presence of our king. There's freedom that comes from submission. And one of the best parts about that freedom is when God asks us to go in a different direction than maybe we had anticipated or wanted, he doesn't send us alone, he goes with us. This week I was reading a, a book written by one of my favorite preachers, a guy named Louis Giglio. And he was talking about that famous one-on-one -on -one time with God that Moses had at the beginning of Moses' journey where God's like, I'm gonna send you on a mission. And Moses like, no, you're not. And what's interesting is Moses is putting up as he's fighting the submission. I love how Louis writes it. Interestingly, God didn't respond with a pep talk. He didn't send Moses to the center for you can do it, training in an effort to boost his confidence. Instead, God answers Moses' who am I question with five life-shifting words as he simply affir affirms, I will be with you. It's as if he was saying to Moses, don't worry about who you are. Just focus on the reality that I'm going to. And if I go with you, trust me, everything's gonna work out fine. Amen. This week, let us be a people that are seeking our most important relationship. If, if you'd love to pray with somebody before you leave tonight, on the, in the back corner, we have an incredible prayer ministry. Some men and women back there would love to pray with you. Uh, next week, I really hope you can join us. Joel's gonna be continuing our series. And as we dig more into Mark, we're gonna see an example of the compassion of our King. And not only are we gonna see the King's compassion, but we're gonna see that this is the type of compassion that Jesus models for us as his followers to have for other people. So I really hope you can join us. We'll see you then. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening.